On this episode of China Unscripted, the war for Taiwan has already begun. Is an invasion coming soon? And why does the US keep losing war games with China? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And this episode is sponsored by Daily Peanut. The news can be a tough pill to swallow. That's why Daily Peanut gives you a daily dose of news in equal parts humor and substance. The link is in the description. And joining us once again is Ian Easton, Senior Director of the Project 2049 Institute and author of The Chinese Invasion Threat, Taiwan's Defense and American Strategy in Asia. Ian, great to have you back on. Chris, it is a great pleasure to see you guys and to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So lately, what's been in the news a lot is like, you know, whether or not there's going to be a war over Taiwan. But I think that's actually kind of framing it wrong. I think the war for Taiwan has already begun. It's not a boots on the ground war yet, but a psychological warfare, definitely. China has been increasingly aggressive in its uh, flyovers of Taiwan. What's been driving this, this, this increased aggression? Well, it's a really good question, and I think you're right. I think there is this war of nerves that's going on right now. Um, and when you think about this uh, recent international interest uh, that uh, everyone has paid towards Taiwan's defense, and this it's not really a war scare, but, but certainly there's been a lot of talk of it in, in the international media recently. I think that's a positive thing. I think it's long overdue. You know, this is an issue that most uh, major media has avoided for a very long time. And it's only recently now that a lot of things that have recently happened that it's kind of made it obvious that, that this is a real flashpoint and it's a real problem. The good news, of course, uh, is very good. I think the good news is that there's no high likelihood of an invasion in the near term. But the bad news is also very bad. And that is over the long term, I think we're very likely to see a major political military crisis here and potentially even an all out war. And, and the bad news is long term is only two years away. Well, you know, that, that's an interesting debate that's gone on is, is when the PLA might be ready. And, and, and nobody knows. Right. Uh, Admiral Davidson famously said uh, up on Capitol Hill that he thought the threat against Taiwan would manifest itself in the next six years, which really means between now and 2027. That's actually a fairly optimistic assessment from somebody in his position, because I remember back in 2017, 2018, the, the U.S. government was telling people, at least quietly, kind of behind closed doors, that they expected something to happen by 2025. They, they thought the PLA would be ready to invade and actually to defeat the United States, potentially, that they might have some confidence in doing that by the year 2025. And so something has happened in recent years, which has pushed the potential timeline back. And so that that's actually quite positive. But it's not that positive, right? Because it still means that this is a very serious threat and that the U.S. government and the U.S. military thinks that there actually could be a conflict of this nature uh, in, you know, in the foreseeable future, right? I mean, six years is not that far off. 
What do you think might have pushed it back a bit? Well, I think the Pentagon, since probably 2018, 2019, has taken the threat much more seriously. To my very limited outside knowledge, they, they weren't that focused on defending Taiwan prior to that time. Uh, but during the, the early days of the Trump administration, it became a, a high priority. And over time, it's become even more of a priority, so much so that they started to come up with, with new innovative uh, thinking and tactics, drills, exercises, uh, all kinds of things to try to, to continually push back uh, the Chinese Communist Party's timeline. Because at the end of the day, this is all about preventing war, right? The, the Pentagon's job is to prepare for war, um, but also to prevent it from happening in the first place. Because if something like this were to actually occur in the real world, it would be the worst strategic failure in American foreign policy since probably World War II. You know, even if we won the war, and I think we would, we would regret it. We would regret ever coming to that place. This is something you never want to see happen because it would be a nightmare for all sides. And so uh, I think they've started to take it much more seriously. They're starting to prepare for it. They're starting to do some new things with the Taiwanese government and military. And so they're starting to be able to push back the, the, the PLA's timeline. But at the same time, a lot of negative things have happened as well, right? We have seen uh, genocide in Xinjiang, which is, which is ongoing, and the international community has done very, very little about it. You know, the reaction from most countries has been little to, to, to nil. And even in our own country, it's only very, very recently that the U.S. State Department even started to call it genocide, right? There was this three, four-year-long debate that went on inside the government before they could even decide on using the truthful uh, terminology, right? And th the same is true for other governments. And so, you know, when you look at, at Xi Jinping and you say, you know, my God, this man has become a genocidal dictator, that really starts to change your thinking about whether or not he's a rational actor. Uh, and whether or not he's somebody that can be deterred by the types of tools um, that the U.S. government traditionally assumed would work against uh, a leader of, of the People's Republic of China. And so that's a very real problem. Hong Kong is also a very real problem. What has happened in, in Hong Kong, you know, what Beijing has done there has been really shocking. And I think that's been a wake up call as well. So do you think it is still possible to prevent a boots-on-the-ground war? Oh, without a doubt. There's no question that it's, it's not only possible, but I think now that the U.S. government and the Pentagon is focused on this problem uh, much more than ever before, and I think they're likely to become even more focused, unfortunately, for, for negative reasons in the years ahead, because, again, I think a crisis is becoming increasingly probable— I think they're going to start to make hard decisions, decisions that uh, they just did not have the political will to make in the past. Um, and the more they do that, then I think the less likely it will become that uh, the Chinese Communist Party will ever be confident that they could actually successfully pull off an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, but again, that's just that's just a guess, right? Coming from a novice 
uh, amateur like myself, you know, who knows what's really going on in the halls of power in Beijing? I don't know that anybody does. You know, who knows really what Xi Jinping's worldview is? I don't know. I've not read, uh, uh, I've read several biographies of Xi Jinping, and I've read a lot of his writings recently, but I've not seen anything that really gets inside of his head and that talks about, you know, what his entire life was like and, and how that shaped his worldview. Uh, but what little we do know would suggest that he's very paranoid. He's very paranoid. And in many ways, um, he, he's very militant. And so he's likely to do things in the years ahead that will surprise us. What are some of these hard decisions, Ian, that you were talking about that the, the Pentagon or the U.S. government are starting to make now that they've been putting off before? Well, one is just to openly talk about Taiwan. Previously, the Pentagon wouldn't talk about Taiwan. They would talk about what they were doing with every other country in the region, including the Cook Islands and Palau and places where you only have tens of thousands of people. Um, and they wouldn't talk about Taiwan. I mean, it was remarkable. I remember going to a number of uh, think tank events, conferences where you'd have U.S. government representatives um, in Washington, D.C., and they just would not talk about Taiwan. It's completely off limits for them. Now they're openly talking, which suggests they're taking it much more seriously. Uh, you're starting to see general officers, at least one-star generals, visit Taiwan, which they did not do in the past. You're starting to see some indications in public that there are uh, military exercises going on between the U.S. and Taiwan. How big those are is not clear, uh, but there are some indications that they are going on, uh, things of that nature, uh, in addition to arms sales. You know, arms sales is kind of like uh, the easiest thing the U.S. government can do is to start to approve arms sales. And they did that in a massive way last year in 2020, right? Pretty much everything the Taiwanese government requested, even things that previously had been completely off the table, that nobody would ever consider, the U.S. government said, yes, sure, why not? All of it. <laughs> it, it was really remarkable. And, and in many ways, that's the easiest thing to do. You know, that's the first thing that the U.S. government is likely to do. Harder questions for the future are, you know, do we start to send four-star generals and admirals to Taiwan? Because if there is a political military crisis, President Biden uh, or, you know, whoever follows him uh, four years or eight years from now, they're going to be in conferences and on video calls with men and women at the Pentagon who have no idea what they're talking about. He's going to be asking for the advice of senior military leaders who have never been to Taiwan. They've never seen the battle space. You know, that's what would happen today. Uh, and I think it's, it's obvious that that would be very dangerous, right? But we have a colonel. We have two colonels in Taipei that represent American defense interests, which is really stunning when you consider the magnitude of, you know, this flashpoint. We have a four-star general command in Korea, and we have at least one three-star in Japan. And so it's, it's pretty remarkable that, you know, we're relying on the advice of, of colonels uh, in, in, in the case of Taiwan, because colonels just don't see the world in the same way that a four-star general or, or admiral would would. And so I think that's an important decision uh, for the future. I think it's something that we're likely to see start to happen. It could happen in secret. We might not know about it at first. Another is, again, bilateral military exercises, uh, starting to put uh, small numbers of troops in Taiwan. 
uh, things of that nature to try to make sure that our commitments uh, to the defense of Taiwan are more credible. And if we continue to go forward with strategic ambiguity, which means, which is actually not very credible at all, uh, because we're publicly saying we don't know what we'll do, um, then at least we'll have a latent capability to defend Taiwan uh, and be prepared uh, if the president should have to order that in the future. What do you think caused this shift in how the U.S. and the Pentagon was viewing Taiwan? I think there were a number of different things that they probably saw that worried them. Uh, one was they saw what had happened in Xinjiang, right? They saw what had happened in Hong Kong. They had seen increasingly aggressive Chinese military and political behavior in the South China Sea and, of course, all around Taiwan. Since January of 2020, there's been a remarkable ramp up of uh, Chinese bomber flights uh, around Taiwan and military activities on the water, under the water, uh, all, you know, even in, in the electromagnetic domain, jamming, cyber attacks. It's been really remarkable, the uptick uh, that's occurred. Uh, it's also remarkable to see the shift in Chinese Communist Party propaganda. The Global Times in particular, who I, I know you guys uh, are big fans of, so am I. Uh, they're, they're, they're great. It's my favorite. Uh, those guys have been really uh, outspoken and uh, in some cases really vicious with their propaganda. They're constantly signaling that China's getting ready to attack Taiwan. Uh, at the same time, there's also been a lot of things that have gone on across from Taiwan that the PLA has done. So, for example, the PLA is now constructing large new helicopter bases across from Taiwan, large new drone bases across from Taiwan. Uh, they have completely restructured their military over the past five years in a way that indicates that they consider the, the future invasion of Taiwan their number one priority. So they, they've actually, you know, of course, the PLA is, is, um, is based on Marxist-Leninist uh, organizational uh, structuring. And so everything's in priority order. Previously, before the 2016 PLA reforms, the uh, group armies that were to the north that faced the former Soviet Union had pride of place, right, in, in their protocol order. Those were the most important armies the, uh, they got the best equipment, they got the best funding, they got the best attention, they got the best seats at the banquets in Beijing, all of that. That has all changed now. Taiwan is clearly the focus. And by way of extension, the United States is clearly the focus because the PLA is not just preparing to invade Taiwan. They're also preparing to fight and to, to defeat the United States because they assume that we will come to Taiwan's uh, aid in this scenario. There have also been things like the new amphibious units being stood up, um, new brigades. They, they've gone from divisions to brigades. That, that seems like a really wonky, uh, silly thing that doesn't really matter that much. It actually does for a military. Uh, it's a really big deal to do something like that. Uh, a brigade is a very large structure. It's very unwieldy. It suggests that you're, you're preparing to fight uh, wars close to home on your borders. You're not projecting power. The new brigade structures that they push through, uh, and they've also gotten rid of regiments as well. They're going to battalions. Uh, in the PLA, a division might have about 10,000 guys. A battalion, uh, excuse me, a brigade might be closer to 5,000. 
and your battalions might be anywhere from 500 to 1500. They're much smaller units and they're, they're able to operate more independently, which is exactly what you would want in a Taiwan invasion campaign. They've also invested very heavily in uh, airborne forces, air assaults. So airborne is, is you know, parachute uh, attacks. Air assaults are attacks, moving troops with helicopters to attack. They've invested, reportedly, they've begun to invest in the mass production of Z-20 helicopters. That's the PLA's version of the Blackhawk. They, they stole the technology from us. If they have, currently they, they have, you know, they number in the dozens, but they plan to build thousands of them. And once they do, that makes the threat of an invasion much more credible. What they've also done in recent years is a civil, excuse me, military civil fusion. You know, this is one of Xi Jinping's signature strategies. That is also all about preparing the fleets uh, in China for a potential invasion of the civilian fleets, ostensibly civilian fleets, for a potential invasion of Taiwan as well. Well, speaking of the civil military fusion, um, this is this is an aspect of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. I guess you call it psychological warfare that just baffles me. How they put up this front of having so-called private Chinese companies that are then able to do business with Taiwan and the U.S. in fields like semiconductors, very critical uh, infrastructure to what could become weapons of war for the Chinese Communist Party. But like even Taiwan is doing business with like private Chinese companies on these uh, critical national security technologies that obviously because of civil military fusion, the Chinese Communist Party can directly get its hands on. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually pretty ingenious on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. The Soviet Union used to do the same thing. It was just that back during the Cold War, nobody trusted the Soviet Union because they knew that you know KGB officers were everywhere. It's very odd the, the level of trust people have put uh, in the PRC, and that they somehow assume that companies in China are, you know, independent legal entities the way they are in the West. That's completely false. And, and all you have to do is read the 2017 National Defense Transportation Law. All you have to do is read the the the, uh, nat, the state security or state, I believe it's called the state intelligence law that also came out that year. Those clearly state that all companies answer first and foremost to the Chinese Communist Party, to the military and to the security services, that they have to put back doors. You know, if you're a, a technology company in China, you have to put back doors in all of your products that allow the military to use them in the event of a, of a crisis. And you have to put back doors in them that allow the security services like MSS to use them in peacetime. And so the idea that, you know, and this is also a problem for the United States, as, as it is for Taiwan that now we have critical national infrastructure, uh, like some of our port facilities and some of our subway cars uh, and, and other, uh, you know, critical life, this is life or death stuff, right? And you're putting it in the hands of the Chinese intelligence services and, and the military um, because you think you're actually dealing with real civilian companies that can say no to the Chinese Communist Party when push comes to shove. And of course they can't. These are just commercial arms of the party and by way of extension, the military. Uh, Taiwan's an interesting example 
right? Because if you look at the port of Gaucham, which is one of the places that PLA would very much like to seize uh, in the event of an invasion, you actually have the most high-tech container terminal there um, being invested in by and partially owned by three Chinese state-owned enterprises. And you have a lot of the gantry cranes, you know, the, the ship-to-shore cranes that unload all of the, the giant containers. Uh, th- that's an all an automated system run by central uh, control centers. So you'd have one dude at a computer operating six or seven different unloading operations. That's all run by a company called ZPMC. Uh, it's in Shanghai and state-owned. It, it's owned, uh, its parent company is China Communications Construction uh, Corporation, which was blacklisted by the, the Pentagon last year because it's so close to the PLA. Uh, ZPMC actually last year was conducting military exercises with some, it owns port facilities, but also ships. It was conducting exercises with the PLA, which simulated a potential invasion of Taiwan at the same moment that it has infrastructure in Taiwan. It's not just Kaohsiung, it's also the port of Taipei. I think they have one crane in Geelong. At the same moment, they're operating some of that. So it's, it's a really remarkable situation. That's just insane. It's not logical, that's for sure. Has this come up in Taiwan? Like, is this something that's like come up in the government or do people know about this? To my knowledge, they do not. Well, you heard it first on China Unscripted. I hope Tsai Wen is watching this. I'm sh- uh, maybe her cats are. Cats love us. <laughs> uh, so, Ian, I wanted to ask about all of the like military jets flying over Taiwan and into their airspace. If you're saying that really the Chinese Communist Party is not ready to invade yet, what are they doing with these flights? Are they trying to kind of wear uh, the Taiwanese military down? Are they trying to kind of establish a new normal where everybody's just like, well, I guess that, you know, the Chinese military is just going to keep doing this. Like, what are they doing? Well, yes to both. Yes to both. They are doing both of those things. Uh, What they're also doing is training. Uh, They're preparing for a future invasion. This is something that they take very, very seriously. They consider if their main strategic direction, uh, that's what they call it. That's the, the jargon that the PLA uses. The main strategic direction of the PLA up until 1992 was to prepare for a future Soviet invasion, which is what they imagined that the big war would be. Once the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, and I believe it was December 91, after that, the PLA started to shift their focus. And since 1992, 1993, the main strategic direction has been preparing for a future offensive war. Previously, it was, it was actually a defensive war. Now it's an offensive war to one day invade and occupy Taiwan while also defeating uh, any American attempts or other international attempts to come to Taiwan's rescue. And so they do prepare. Part of those flights and part of the reasons you see so many Y-8 surveillance aircraft and intelligence gathering aircraft go up with the bombers is because they're monitoring. that These are basically listening posts uh, in the air. And they're listening. They're trying to pick up any signals that they can. Communications between uh, radar stations, any radar frequencies if the Taiwanese should turn on any of their air defense radars. Uh, You have these computer banks that sit in the back of those uh, PLA aircraft 
that that will collect the signal, and they'll try to get uh, the electronic order of battles, what they call it, uh, the signals from those radars, so they can figure out how to better jam them in the future. The United States does the same thing. The Taiwanese do the same thing. Uh, this is part of that, you know, that jockeying for uh, intelligence superiority uh, in peacetime that goes on. But it's a very serious activity uh, in this case because they've actually started to deny the existence of the cross-strait centerline, which up until last year everybody respected that. You know, that was that was a no-go zone. You know, that was a political no-no that you don't cross that 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 line unless something really serious is going on because the consequences could be so serious. Starting last year, as, as you guys know, uh, they completely denied the existence of it. They said, we're no longer going to respect it. As far as we're concerned, it no, no longer exists. And we're going to violate it uh, all the time now. And, and they are. And part of the reason they do that is because the closer they get to Taiwan, the more they violate Taiwanese um, uh, airspace uh, or you know Taiwan's uh, air defense identification zone, the more likely it is that the Taiwanese are going to make mistakes, that they're going to start to turn on radars that they normally wouldn't, that they're going to start to tip their hand uh, and show what some of their um, their response tactics in a real fight might look like. That's all the kind of intelligence that the PLA wants to collect. But I think it's important, uh, if you guys will allow me, to go back to that earlier point that we are just not seeing indications. You know, despite all of these, you know, the, the real remarkable increase in PLA activity against Taiwan, including political warfare, right? Propaganda, psychological operations, legal, you know, legal warfare. Despite all of that, and it has been a really remarkable uptick since last year, but despite that, nobody's dying. You know, that's the real good news is that nobody's dying. Because once people start to die, then then things start to look a little darker. And what I mean by that is, we don't have any reports right now that suggest a lot of PLA troops are dying in training exercises because generally PLA training is not highly complex. It's not very realistic. They're not doing a lot of live fire work. They're not, they're not maneuvering forces at night. Uh, all the kinds of things that lead to uh, training deaths. We're not seeing that right now. If we thought a war was, or if they thought a war was coming soon, you would expect to see a lot of training deaths because they'd start to take it very, very seriously. We're also not seeing other kinds of death. So, for example, there's been no assassination attempts, thank God, against President Tsai or anybody in the Taiwanese government. You would expect to see that prior to an all-out war. We've not seen other indications of a pending conflict. Right? We've not seen a, a sharp in, increase in murder and mayhem in Taiwan, riots, gun running, uh, sabotage against critical infrastructure, you know, poisoning of, of fuel and water supplies, uh, long-term power blackouts, uh, things of that nature, you know, prison breaks. All of these are the types of things that you would expect to see if Taiwan was going to be attacked in the near future. Happily, None of that is going on right now. Uh, and so that's why I say, as far as we can tell, time well, war is not about to break out. Well, so it sounds like what you're saying is if China were to invade, they would be behind a lot of uh, social chaos inside of Taiwan. Is that uh, a, a typical strategy of the Communist Party? 
Well, absolutely. Of course. This goes way back to the Chinese Civil War. It goes back to, you know, this is the way uh, the Soviet Union also uh, operated. Um, this is absolutely typical. This is part of their their doctrine for how, first of all, how do you subvert your own government, right? Because all, all communist parties have had to first subvert their the existing government, right? And then take over, usually after a long war, uh, which was the case in the PLA's, uh, you know, in, the, in their experience, they had to fight a 22-year-long uh, insurgency uh, before Mao could actually stand, um, you know, over the gates of, of Tiananmen and, and declare that the People's Republic of China had been founded that, you know, in October of, of uh, 1949. That was after a 22-year-long civil war. And even then, the civil war was not over, right? Because Chiang Kai-shek still had a superior air force and navy, and he was still fighting Mao up and down uh, the coast of Fujian and uh, Zhejiang. And there were some very major battles that actually occurred in the 1950s. Uh, and so he still hadn't won the war. Um, but, you know, they were in a, in a period of crisis, and there was that constant... Um, thought that went into it how do we destabilize taiwan now how do we um there were a lot of pla studies that were done how do we do to taiwan's government uh on taiwan the roc government what we had previously done to it on the mainland and uh there was a case in the early 1950s where there was a massive spy ring where you had these undercover pla operatives in taiwan that was uh, discovered by Chiang Kai-shek's uh, counterintelligence forces. And they were wrapped up and executed publicly uh, to show, to tell Mao that they had been executed and, and all, of your, all of your undercover operatives are gone now. And so don't try to invade us because it's not gonna work. Uh, the PLA invasion planning has always relied on a heavy dose of internal uh, destabilization. Well, I'm just wondering because a lot of the uh, social problems that you mentioned you would see in Taiwan if the Communist Party were actually trying trying to invade. You know, you do see a lot of those sort of things happening in the United States today. Would it be possible that the Chinese Communist Party would try to distract the U.S. with internal problems to potentially make it less likely to be able to defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion? Well, it would do that anyways. And I think it is doing that Anyways, I think there's a reason why the U.S. government closed the consulate, the PRC consulate in Houston last year uh, when the rioting was getting very violent and very bad. Um, I think there's a reason why the Department of Homeland Security last December came out publicly and said, listen, since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, China's government has intentionally been exporting faulty testing kits to the United States in large numbers, and has been sending us millions of, of fake masks and defective masks. And oh, by the way, uh, we are being flooded by lethal opioids that are only made in China. And China doesn't have an opioid addiction problem. Uh, and very few other countries do either, which would suggest that we are specifically being targeted. No, I mean, maybe it sounds paranoid to say that, but when the U.S. government starts to come out and say, hey, listen, this is a very real threat, you, you have to start to wonder uh, if, if, they not, if maybe they are 
at a certain level of trying to destabilize American society. Uh, luckily, that's going to be very difficult to do. The, the United States has always had uh, a very high, uh, I think, the ratio of violent crime in our country has always been very high relative to other advanced democracies. And, and we're used to it. And we have a police force that uh, is used to it and, and knows how to handle it in almost all cases, right? There are obviously extremes where things do get out of, out of, of hand. Um, but in general, our, our uh, law enforcement and our uh, democracy is not easy to subvert. You know, one of the, the beautiful things about our system of government is it's built with a lot of checks and balances. You know, you guys represent one of those checks, right? Investigative journalists are, are one of the, the best, best things that the United States has going for it, right? Freedom of the press, because that ensures that, that the, the average person uh, on the street will know when things are, are going on, that the government's doing that are wrong. And we saw a lot of that happen last year and that resulted in change and that resulted in a lot of good things happening. Um, and so that that's one example. Of course, we also have independent judiciary, right? The police officers uh, can actually go to jail. They can spend the rest of their lives in jail if they commit crimes. That doesn't happen in countries like China where the police routinely torture people. It's actually part of their, if you read the Peter Mattis's book, the book he wrote with Matt Brazil, where they talk about Chinese espionage, uh, they report in there that this is actually par for the course. If you get arrested in China, you're almost certainly going to be tortured until you confess uh, that that's just part of the way they do business. Right, but that's a lot more efficient than putting people on a you know a full trial or trying to get them to take a plea bargain. You just torture them to a confession. It's, it's much easier. Uh, they have found it to be very efficient, right? Because I think the, the statistics say something like 99.99% of people who are arrested in China are actually found guilty in the end. It's very unusual to ever be found not guilty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's a real, it's a very scary environment there because the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party really operates in many ways in a very mafioso style, right? It's a very dog-eat-dog environment that they live in and so for a guy like xi jinping to rise to the top he's been living it his entire life since he was a kid and his dad was a, a very high level ccp official uh, he was one of the original revolutionaries so was his mom actually uh, and they were both purged when he was a kid and he had to deal with some, some terrible things as a result of that and so did his family you know his older sister was killed uh, during the cultural revolution so he's had to deal with this his whole life and the fact that he's come out on top and the fact that he's come out in, in a way that nobody else has since Mao Zedong to become really an absolute dictator really says something about the man. For somebody to be that tyrannical and that violent and that militant um, and to, to have conducted the types of purges that he's conducted and continues to conduct, and the type of genocidal behavior, that is really disturbing uh, to think about. When you think about, you know, the implications of, of him uh, on Chinese politics, 
and on international politics in the years ahead. He's really a product of the system there. But so what you were saying about um, Chinese unrestricted warfare, influence operations in the United States, it kind of touches on, hey, nice mug. Oh, I yeah. I saw that. I, you know, the air here is so dry. Yeah. It's I, important. I just get really thirsty. It's important get, to stay I really hydrated. Talking too much. I, I get very thirsty. And, and there's something about this mug. Excuse me for a second. Mm. Boy, I bet drinks taste better in that mug. Oh, there's something about drinking my coffee out of that mug that oh is gosh. just particularly enjoyable. You know, and I bet if somebody went to like, I don't know, China TV and looked at the merchandise page, maybe they could find some themselves. Or has that not been launched? Uh, uh, yeah, so there's t-shirts there, but the mugs uh, still have been struggling to oh, get the Chris, made in USA were, mugs. You were uh, but, but it doing was, it so was, well. It was so close. Yeah. Well, I guess like China, we have yet to launch. Oh. Uh, Anywho. So, what the point I was getting to before we enjoyed our beverages <laughs> was that for China to invade Taiwan, it has to deal with the issue of other countries, what the U.S. will do, what Japan will do, what Australia will do. Uh, how is the Chinese Communist Party working to factor the that into the equation? Well, it's always a factor, right? If you look at uh, Chinese Communist Party diplomacy around the world, th this is always priority number one, is to try to undermine any foreign government support for Taiwan. You know, th this is every member of the Chinese Communist Party, and especially those who are working abroad, that's what they do. That, that, that really is a top priority for them. Uh, and it goes beyond the official government-to-government -government relationships. This is also something that you see happen in their people-to-people -people diplomacy uh, and in the diplomacy between political parties, right? Because the Chinese Communist Party also reaches out to uh, political parties that may not be in power today, but they know will be in the future. So this is a really big part of what they do. Uh, this is what uh, the United Front Work Department is all about. Uh, but all the organs of the PLA, from you know the liaison department in the PLA is heavily focused on this, the international department, um, the Ministry of State Security, uh, all their propaganda apparatus, this, this is a major focus. So they're constantly trying to get other countries to abandon Taiwan and to stay silent on Taiwan. And so they don't speak out on Taiwan's behalf, even though everybody can see Taiwan being bullied and coerced. But because they themselves are being bullied and coerced, effectively, uh, most of the time it's effective, they don't say anything. Uh, and that's exactly what Beijing wants. And so that's why, uh, even though there's been a, a massive uptick in, you know, aggressive military maneuvering around Taiwan and, and propaganda messaging since uh, last year, very few countries have actually come out uh, to express real sympathy for Taiwan. And even those countries that have, like Japan and Australia, aren't actually doing anything to help other than express, you know, their, their sympathy. They're not actually sending military attaches to Taiwan or trainers or liaison officers or participating in exercises, anything like that. So unfortunately, political warfare works. Coercion works. The Chinese Communist Party 
is able to intimidate other governments and, and of course, private actors like, you know, airlines, for example, you know, major corporations, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, you know, our major tech companies, Wall Street investing firms, they're able to very effectively manipulate them so they don't support Taiwan. And, uh, and so that's a, that's a very serious issue. And in fact, you know, there's an argument to be made that our entire U.S. government policy toward Taiwan is based on coercion. Strategic ambiguity, th- this idea that we're not going to treat Taiwan like a legitimate government and a legitimate country, even though it is, and even though for 30 years we did, from 1949 till 1979, we had an embassy in Taipei. And we had nuclear weapons deployed at Tainan Air Base, and we were ready to use them if China tried to invade. And then all of a sudden, overnight in 1979, we said, nope, nope, Taiwan uh, no longer exists as a country. It's no longer a government. Uh, Now the official U.S. position is strategic ambiguity, that we're not going to be clear anymore. We're not going to be truthful in in our use of terminology. And so you'll see U.S. government uh, officials and they have to do this. I'm sure they don't want to, but they have to say uh, the Taiwan authorities. They can't say the Taiwanese government. They can't even say Taiwanese. They say the Taiwans. Well, you would never say the Japans or the Canada's, right? You say the Japanese or the Canadians, right? But in Taiwan's case, they say the Taiwans. It's the strangest dang thing to talk to U.S. government diplomats uh, when they talk about Taiwan um, and to have to listen to to some of their speeches when they give speeches about Taiwan, because they have to use this really convoluted language uh, that's not truthful at all. And that's, what is that based on? It's based on coercion, right? This is a concession that the U.S. government made to China, to the Chinese Communist Party, because they were afraid that if they didn't do that, that China might attack and there might be war. And so instead of basing our Taiwan policy as a country on what is in our national interests, what is true, what do we know to be true, what do we believe to be true, what do our principles and our values say, we have gotten into a position over the past 40 plus years now where we base it on fear. And the first question anybody in Washington asks uh, when you try to present a new idea Like recently, there was this debate that went on about getting rid of strategic ambiguity. I think it's a very important debate and it's a very good debate to have. The first question most people asked was not, you know, should we do that? Is that really, does that make sense? Is that rational? Would that be good for us? People don't ask that. People ask, well, if we do, what will Beijing do? You know, how are they going to hurt us if, if we If we do that, that's the first thing people do. And that blinds them to all of their options, right? Because we're we're a superpower. We're a sovereign country. You know, we should be able to make foreign policy based on our values, our principles, and on objective reality, the truth. But in this case, that has not yet happened. Well, speaking of that, that reminds me of of something Shelley was talking about. Yeah, so Global Times. we've definitely been noticing a bunch of articles lately that are saying things like, uh, you know, the U.S. would lose a war with China over Taiwan. There was one published in the Global Times uh, that kind of read like standard Global Times speak, you know, incredibly 
dismissive of the Taiwanese government. Like, wouldn't call it the Taiwanese government. Uh, the, the Taiwan's authorities. Well, you know, it didn't say that, but it was, you know, uh, you know, accusing the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, of you know being chaotic and like wanting independence, and like the U.S. would be a fool to support them, and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, talking about how badly the U.S. would lose a war over Taiwan, and then at the bottom, you realize that the person who wrote this was not like the Global Times editor-in-chief, it was a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer. Who's still who's active currently, in the Pentagon. He's currently like a, 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 a civilian consultant for the Pentagon. But that wasn't the only one. That was just like a very a particularly like interesting example of this. There was also a New York Times opinion article that was criticizing Biden's Taiwan policy as being like, chaotic and messy and reckless because uh, it was accusing uh, Biden essentially of going back on strategic ambiguity. I mean, there have been a number of these in the last few weeks, and it's interesting to see them all kind of pop out right now. And we were having this conversation about whether this is kind of psychological warfare. I think it's hands down it's psychological warfare. But I wanted to get your your thoughts on that, that Ian. Yeah, there's no question that this is polit- is political warfare is what they call it in in PLA jargon, right? And that's psychological warfare. It's media warfare. They're trying to shape the narrative. They're trying to push a false narrative in this case, and they're using their lobbyists, many of whom are paid. Others are not paid. They're, they're what Lenin would call useful idiots. They actually don't know the facts of the matter, but they've been told a certain uh, number of, of things by their Chinese interlocutors, usually on trips to Beijing, mm-hmm. um, and they believe them. You know, people can be easily manipulated, uh, especially when they go to China. This is something the Chinese Communist Party is very good at. They're very good at handling, manipulating foreigners and putting words in their mouth. Uh, they have a, a core group of people that this is all they do, right? All they do is handle foreigners, and their English is great. They're charming. Uh, they take them on these, these grand tours and they talk about China's imperial past. And there's a lot of showmanship that's involved. There's a lot of whining and dining that's involved. And at the end of it, you see delegation after delegation come back to Washington or London or, or wherever they're from. And they're just simpering shadows of their former selves. And they just have all of this praise for for a very ugly regime, which is engaged in some extremely ugly behavior, uh, really terrifying behavior, when you look at, the, again, the genocide that's going on, uh, and and they can somehow look past that, and they don't see that anymore. Uh, and they actually end up becoming tools of Chinese Communist Party propaganda. I think that's what you're seeing there. Uh, anybody serious who, and I'm not serious, right? I'm, I'm an amateur. I'm, I'm, I work at a think tank, right? But people who are in the U.S. government and in the intelligence community, those that, that I've uh, read and those that I've talked to are in almost uniform agreement that the PLA could not successfully invade Taiwan today uh, as long as the U.S. intervened, right? If the U.S. doesn't help Taiwan, then, then Taiwan's in big trouble. They're in big trouble. But if the U.S. does, then 
there's almost no question that that Taiwan is safe, uh, at least for the next five to six years. After that, you know, the um, the digital magic eight ball that war gamers look into starts to become very hazy and it becomes much more difficult to predict. It is interesting that this all kind of happened after there's increasing talk about Taiwan, about defending Taiwan with the U.S. admirals coming out and saying how China is the biggest threat in the Pacific and specifically their threat to Taiwan. So it almost feels like it's trying to get the U.S. to think it's not worth defending Taiwan. Like I think one of there's an article in Business Insider that was literally called like it you know something about how it would be costly and like stupid essentially for the U.S. to get involved in a war over Taiwan. Yeah, I think the subheading was uh, "Let's roll over and let China do whatever it wants." Well, I don't think I think that's the subtext, right? Well, so let's frame it this way: they they say like, "Oh, the U.S. can't afford to defend Taiwan." Ian, if the Chinese Communist Party does take Taiwan, is that something the U.S. can afford? Of course not. Absolutely not. You know, the U.S. cannot, first and foremost, our country cannot afford to fail in preventing this war and in deterring this war from occurring in the first place. But if we do fail, as we might in in the years ahead, you know, if our government fails and if, if the military fails to deter a conflict, which I don't think is going to happen, but if that were to happen, then we certainly cannot fail to prevent the Chinese amphibious operation or blockade or whatever it is to be successful. That Taiwan, Taiwan's continued uh, freedom and democracy is absolutely vital to the national security of the United States. And anybody that says otherwise has not thought very much about this issue. I don't think. Most thoughtful analysts would look at it and they would think through the scenario. They would think through what the world would look like after something like that were to occur. And they would say, no, no, we don't want to live in a world like that. Because after World War II, you have not seen that. You've not seen great power conflict. You've not seen countries invade countries willy-nilly and have this kind of law of the jungle rule in the international community. There have been a few cases where, where it could have happened, like on the Korean Peninsula in 1950 uh, with Kuwait in 1990-91, right, the invasion of Kuwait. But the U.S. in each of these instances came to the rescue. And in those cases, those were dictatorships we rescued. Those weren't even vibrant democracies like Taiwan, pro, pro-American democracies like Taiwan. And we still rescued them because after the lesson of World War II, which was the worst world, which was the worst war ever fought in human history, the lesson there was we don't want to live in a world like that. We don't want to live in a world where you have these authoritarian countries who are revanchist, they're ambitious, uh, they're expansionistic, they're militant, and they just invade smaller neighbors because they can, right? Because they're strong enough to do it. So they do it, and they and they take that prize. We don't want to live in that world. That's why we have the United Nations. That, that's why the United Nations was founded in the first place, to try to prevent that from happening. That's why pretty much all of the major institutions of international global governance, like the International Monetary Fund, 
and, and a whole raft of others, the World Trade Organization, they were all funded on that idea. Even the European Union was 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 founded on, on that idea. We don't want to live in a world like that. We don't want to go back to the 1930s. Uh, and so that's why, uh, and that's just one of many reasons why I think that the United States, uh, A, is, is not going to let this happen. But if we do, then we're we're going to, I think, come to come to Taiwan's rescue. So even if, like, let's say, ideologically, you know, we don't care about democracy or the lives of the people in Taiwan or bubble tea, right? The, there's still a reason to go and defend Taiwan because if we don't, then it's kind of like uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, right? And then the PRC is going to keep expanding beyond Taiwan. Like, is that kind of what you're getting at? I mean, if you give the PRC a cookie, it's going to want milk. <laughs> and if you give it milk, it, it, you know, things, as you guys have read the story, right? It spins out of control and hurting, right? That, oh, yeah. That, that's the world of 1930s, right? That, that's what happens. And we don't want that to happen. So, so basically what you're saying is a war for Taiwan would not be the start of World War III. China taking Taiwan would be the start of World War III. I think that's – I've never thought of it quite like that. But, but Chris, that, that's a really interesting way to frame it. And I think that's right. I think that's right. But, you know, if they take Taiwan, surely they'll stop there. You just sign a, sign a peace deal with them, and, and they promise to not expand further. And I think uh, history shows us that that works. Definitely. Well, so, Ian, you've come up with two interesting uh, points that um, the U.S. right now is trying to prevent any kind of war for Taiwan. If that fails then you're going to be in a situation where the U.S. will have to do something to defend Taiwan. So I'm curious, what can the U.S. do now to support Taiwan to prevent any kind of conflict? And in the event of a conflict, if the U.S. does fail to stop it, what could the U.S. do then? Well, that's a really good question. And I think it's one that deserves a lot of attention, a lot of discussion, and actually a lot of study. Because deterrence theory, as we know it today, as an academic field, is very thin, very bare bones, uh, and there's not a lot of brain power that's been invested in it since the end of the Cold War. And even in the latter years of the Cold War, when we started to have precision weaponry and stealth technology and things of that nature, there was not a good understanding of, or even a good theory of how all that would work. When you have, you know, sophisticated conventional weapons that can actually have nuclear level effects on the enemy and then combine that with escalation and then potential nuclear strikes. And then now today we're in an era where we have Chinese Communist Party controlled infrastructure, basic infrastructure in our country, in all countries. I mean, if you look at Mexico, right? Four of Mexico's uh, largest container ports are all run by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, through the uh, state-owned enterprises, some of our American uh, container parts, uh, container ports, have ZPMC uh, systems and, and cranes uh, in them, which are, again, ZPMC is a front for the PLA and the Chinese security services by law in, in the PRC, uh, and that's true for for pretty much every country in the world where you where you see things like that go on. So, how does that impact deterrence? We don't know. How does cyber warfare impact deterrence i don't know 
I don't know anybody who's working on a PhD dissertation or a book to try to find out. Um, there's just so much that we don't understand about modern warfare because happily we haven't had to experience it, right? There's all these weapons capabilities now that China has and that Taiwan has too, and that we have even more of it in many cases. And no one's ever seen what it looks like when they are exchanged. No one has any data on that. There's a lot of war games that go on, but you have to realize war games are not supposed to be predictive and they're not predictive. No computer can tell you what a future fight would look like. War games are based on guesses, huge, huge numbers of, of guesses programmed in them by humans who are just guessing. And the results are pure wind. And they're meant to be, right? Oh, the purpose of a war game is, for example, that, that the Rand Corporation or others would run. You read about these uh, sometimes in the news. The purpose is to make an American military officer experience defeat. You want them to experience defeat. A Kobayashi Maru scenario. Yeah, exactly. You, you want them. Actually, I'm pretending I understand that. Metaphor. I, I don't understand what you just meant. But Watch more Star Trek. Let's pretend I'm cool enough to understand what you just said. I, that, no, 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 no you're uncool enough to understand. No, no, no. That. Very, very cool. You guys very cool. Shelley, Matt, did you get that? What syndrome? No, no, no. Kobayashi Maru. That's uh, in Star Trek. It was like an unwinnable scenario, right? I love that Shelley can explain it. It, it was a it was a program computer uh, war, war game, like war simulation, and then there was no way to win it. Okay. Yes, yeah. that's a good that's a good example. That's a good metaphor, yeah. right? Except for Captain Kirk, he won it. Is that right? Well, okay. Spoiler, well, Chris. Well, because he doesn't believe in no win scenarios. He reprogrammed the program to make it winnable. Aha. So he would actually not be a good officer in today's military. That's what Spock said. <laughs> a good officer has to not question the game. And you have to lose. You have to experience that because, and this is not just true for the military. This is true for all people. We always learn more from the games that we lose than we learn from the games we win, right? And that's the, that's the point of these war games is you want military officers to experience defeat and then you want them to talk about it. And you want them to figure out what they could have done better. And that way, if there's ever a real world fight that they get into, they'll be much better equipped for it. And so all the reports that you see about how, oh, you know, in Pentagon War Games, U.S. loses nine out of ten times or ten out of ten times, that's it's supposed to be that way. If huh. it's not that way, the war games are not being programmed correctly, right? Um, and so what's the name of that syndrome? Kobayashi Maru scenario, I think. Kobayashi Maru. You actually want that. You want a Kobayashi Maru syndrome programmed into these things. <laughs> Star Trek is so, so ahead of its time. Uh, well, I'm glad I've influenced, uh, hopefully, the dialogue in Taiwan security issues now to include a bit more references to Star Trek. Actually, Star Trek, I, I, I have much to, to learn about Star Trek, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the idea of a Borg, that you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. I think that is a really good way to explain Chinese psychological warfare. That, that's Ooh. the message, 
right? That is their message constantly. And actually, it goes back to this, you know, Marxist-Leninist thought. It goes back to um, international communism, you know, back to 1919 when it, when you first had, um, what was it called, uh, intercom established, you know, communist or, or Comintern, Comintern. communist international, right? When it was established yeah. in Moscow, that was the idea is that they were going to spread communism and socialism around the world and that that resistance was futile, that they were going to simulate everybody and everything and there was nothing anybody could do about it. And that was their propaganda line. And that continues to this day that the Chinese Communist Party continues to have this narrative that socialism ultimately will win and capitalism will die. And that resistance to that in Taiwan or the United States or anywhere else is futile. Uh, and Shelley, that gets to your um, earlier point about their propaganda uh, and how they've influenced some Americans to actually believe in that and actually to write uh, on their behalf and to you know project this false narrative. So even though modern China might uh, try and present it as like you know nice private businesses, uh, cap it's capitalism. Even though there's this front of sort of, you know, the Ferengi rules of acquisition, really it's still the Borg. Just say I yes. think it's the Borg. <laughs> I think it's the Borg. Uh, I think that's a really good way to describe it. I know what this section of the podcast is going to be called. So, Ian, uh, in terms of deterrence from a non-military standpoint, are there non-military things that the U.S. should be doing now? Oh, absolutely. No, no question about it. I mean, most of deterrence is actually not military. Most of deterrence is political. You know, the, the U.S. State Department, people don't think of the U.S. State Department being, you know, an arm, a, a, you know, a strong arm of the U.S. government. It actually is that they were the ones, first and foremost, that deterred great power conflict with the Soviet Union for 40 plus years through some very dangerous crises um, that they actually came up with these policies um, and these practices that helped us get through this long Cold War with the Soviet Union, which was very, there were moments that that could have gone sideways and human civilization as we know it could have ended. The stakes were extremely high. And it was mostly diplomats that came up with how to do it. And one of the, the ways that we did it was that we provided assistance to countries that could have been assimilated into the Borg, into the Soviet Borg, um, and then also to the Chinese Communist Borg, uh, or to the Cuban Communist Borg, right, which what almost happened uh, down to Grenada, um, we provided them with assistance. And that when countries were attacked, we defended them. And in order to try to prevent future attacks, that we actually would put uh, U.S. troops in country. And so that's one of the reasons why, after World War II, you had U.S. troops deployed all around the world. Uh, even though that's always kind of gone against the grain of you know, traditional American foreign policy from, from the 1780s up until really 1945, 1946, uh, the United States was not about that. But after the lesson of World War II, we started to do that. We would never put enough troops in any country in order to actually prevent a successful enemy invasion. It was, and we still don't. We, we don't do that in Europe today. Uh, in Poland, for example, or in Germany, um, Russia could actually successfully invade those countries, in at least initially. 
But by having a strategic trip line there, and we also do this, of course, with South Korea and others, uh, it guarantees that if the bad guys, if they invade, the U.S. is all in. And we're coming with a million reinforcements or two million or three million or whatever it takes, right? Um, and the result of that is that Western Europe was never invaded. And South Korea is never going to be invaded. And no U.S. treaty ally will ever be invaded, I don't think, because you have those strategic trip lines there. And again, that's not military. That's political. That's State Department signaling that that those countries there's an ironclad guarantee that's constantly communicated uh and you have high level uh visits you know our president will go to these countries and stand shoulder to shoulder with the prime minister or the president or the premier of of those countries and release joint statements and and talk about how important the alliance is uh, all of these types of uh, diplomatic signaling activities are extremely important we have not seen that with taiwan and that's one of the reasons why the Taiwan Strait is so structurally unstable. It is fundamentally unstable at a, at a deep strategic level. Uh, and I think that's that's something the U.S. government's going to have to grapple with in the years ahead. So, like, as you said before, put a four-star general in Taiwan. Absolutely, right? So, uh, our at our de facto embassy... You know, which is an embassy in all but name, AIT, the American Institute in, in Taiwan. Uh, instead of having a colonel there as the highest ranking uh, Department of Defense official, yeah, a four-star general or admiral. Um, having uh, guys from JSOC, the Joint uh, Special Forces Command, um, having a number of those guys go over to Taiwan, whether it's, you know, it could number in the hundreds, maybe a thousand uh, guys, uh, many of whom would probably be undercover, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Delta Force, guys that go there and they learn the language, they see the battle space, they train together with the Taiwanese, they train the Taiwanese, uh, they serve as liaison officers, intelligence collectors, um, they over time then become the strategic trip line. That's one way to do it. You could use Marines in that capacity as well. Um, there's a lot of different innovative things that could go on if the State Department started to allow them to happen. One of the things that we have seen, which I think is pretty innovative, is Secretary Blinken has started talking about Taiwan and starting to, to say publicly that, that our support, his support, President Biden's support for Taiwan is what he, what he says is rock solid. And that's a constant theme now in American diplomacy. That is a very positive development. You did not see that previously. Um, and so there are indications i think that we have that we're on a uh, a good trajectory in terms of making incremental improvements to our policy the problem is and the question is will it be enough um and will they move fast enough to prevent a conflict will there be the political will there to do that or will they wait until there's a crisis that forces really hard decisions. Um, traditionally, historically, the U.S. government's tendency has been to wait, right? We did that in 1954 during the, the first Taiwan Strait crisis, and it got really, really bad. And then in March of 55, we said, okay, we, yeah, we need to make the Republic of China, Taiwan, we need to make them 
an ally. And so we did, right? Um, and then in 58, when there was the second Taiwan Strait crisis, same thing happened, where Jinma and Matsu, especially Jinma, was being shelled massively, and it looked like the PLA was preparing to invade. You know, Jinma is one of Taiwan's outer islands. It, it sits at the mouth of Xiamen Bay. And, uh, and there was a lot of Taiwanese troops there. And the U.S. government said, okay, <laughs> we need to intervene here before this gets out of hand. And you send in the aircraft carriers and park them right off of Jinmen and help resupply the Taiwanese, which we did. And then give them things like Sidewinder missiles so they can maintain air superiority, which we did. Uh, and then in 96, 90, uh, 95-96, during the third Taiwan Strait crisis, that also forced some tough political decisions. And so if there is, and hopefully there won't be, but if there is a serious political military crisis in this decade, uh, my prediction would be that that would force hard decisions and the result would be the United States would start to do things to support Taiwan that it's never considered before. Well, I know there's lots of talk about how China has rapidly expanded its navy, how it's developed uh, really remarkably remarkable uh, anti-aircraft carrier missiles. Can the U.S. afford to wait this time? Well, of, of course, I would say no. We, we can't afford uh, to do nothing. We can't afford to, to let the, the current trend lines just play themselves out. That, that currently, the state of U.S.-Taiwan relations is remarkably poor, actually. Again, we, we don't have general officers posted in Taiwan. I think that's indicative. We don't have ship visits to Taiwan. We don't have a strategic trip line there deployed already, at least to my knowledge. You know, there could be one in secret, but if it's too secret, that doesn't have any deterrent effect. It doesn't signal political resolve if you keep it secret. Um, we don't do large-scale bilateral military exercises with the Taiwanese, right? There's a lot of things that we could do that so far... We don't, which suggests that, again, the, these are really hard decisions and that, um, you know, I think they're very important decisions. And they're decisions that should be made before a crisis should occur, but they might not be. And because they might not be, ironically, um, or at least logically, it makes that crisis that much more likely to occur. So it's, it's a very difficult problem. All right. Well, Ian, thank you again for joining us. That was very, very informative. My pleasure. It's great to see you guys. And uh, thanks again so much for having me on the show. Well, it's, al it's always our pleasure because, you know, having someone so smart and knowledgeable on the show makes us seem that way. So this is a, always a good opportunity. I learn what little I know about China and the Chinese Communist Party listening to your show and your podcast. And so please keep up the good work. Because oh, we got it from reading your book. Well, what do you think my best sources were for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, cheers to that, Ian. Cheers, guys. Pleasure as always. Well, gosh, it's 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 always a pleasure to have have Ian on. Yeah, no, I I'm uh, gratified and terrified. Well, actually, I feel pretty good that like how confident he is that the U.S. is still capable of preventing any kind of armed conflict over Taiwan. Well, and that we've taught him about Star Trek. Oh, OK. I was going to say, because you've 
it see it's that psychological warfare slowly eating away. Yeah, the the, the war is inevitable. In, in, so inevitable. roll over now. Yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that you think that we've been influenced by the CCP psychological warfare to th- to think that the invasion is closer than it really is? I'm not sure they want to make it seem like the invasion is closer. I think they want to make it seem like the U.S. shouldn't do anything to help Taiwan. And if they do anything to help Taiwan, it's going to anger China. Oh, I don't want to anger China. I know. A lot yeah. of people like that. I, ca- I can't believe the... Well, yeah, like the Global Times article you were saying, which reads just like any old other Global the Times article. written by a former Marine. And then, yeah, it's a former Marine who is... is What, what do they call it? A civilian... He's a, uh, like a, a consultant for the Pentagon. Yeah, civilian consultant for the Pentagon yeah. or something. No, it, that's, it, that's crazy. It's terrifying that that kind of person is consulting for the Pentagon. like that, the, And then that the Pentagon might be influenced by this, which is going to influence the State Department, which is why you know, no U.S. president can have a phone call with Tsai Ing-wen. Yeah, you'd think anyone who is writing for Chinese state-run media should not be allowed in the halls of governance, or the military especially. I do think that that it's a little weird that that was allowed, but who knows if it was, you know? And wasn't like a, a somebody in the Space Force fired recently for like criticizing Marxism? So like somebody gets fired for criticizing Marxism in the U.S. military, but somebody can write... Can criticize the U.S. military. ...military in Chinese state-run media. It's almost like there's a problem with Marxism in the military. No, 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 no. That guy was retired. There we go. And case closed. And today's podcast is sponsored by Daily Peanut. If you're tired of us talking for an hour and want some short, entertaining news stories, subscribe to Daily Peanut. It's a bunch of fast, timely news stories selected for you and available to read on your phone, tablet, or computer. Reading Daily Peanut is an easy way to filter out the noise and learn more about the world news that matters. Join more than 250,000 other readers. Education and entertainment delivered right to your inbox every morning. And the best part is, it's free. So sign up for Daily Peanut now. Use the link in the description below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jong. And I'm Matt Ganesha. We'll talk to you next time. Resistance is futile. I thought we were going to talk about the Borg later. And we never did go back to that. Oh, we can talk about the Borg. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, I got Star Trek to talk about with Shelley. Matt, you can come.